Thanks for uh, joining today. We're going to be revisiting a little bit of a previous discussion about how we can control and manage stress. But before we go about talking about how we can, can control and manage stress, I think it's important to understand what stress is and what stress does to the body and why we need to worry about controlling that stress. Before we get started, please make sure you're giving us those five-star ratings. If you haven't already done so, please make sure you've subscribed to all of the various platforms that we are publishing on. With that out of the way, let's get back to talking about stress. We've seen the pictures of the presidents that somehow have aged 15, 20, 30 years in a four-year calendar term of presidency. We've heard stories about people who look so much younger than what their actual age is. We tend to reflect a lot on the age of the person based off what the person looks like, how much gray hair they might have, how many wrinkles they have, how many liver spots they express. But what's the underlying rationale for why those things might occur? Why is it that some people age much more rapidly than other people? What is it about the stress that is in our life that causes aging to take place? There's been a recent study that indicates that aging is not an inflammatory issue or a response to stresses, that it seems to be a first world issue, not a human issue. A very interesting speculation that was made. And so let's go ahead and let's talk about what stress does to the body and what we can do to go about controlling stress in our life. Warning. The following presentation contains information that might contradict what you have previously heard or believed to be true about how the human body works and contains material that is not suitable for closed-minded individuals. Enjoy. Any discussion about stress has to start with the general concept of homeostasis. Homeostasis is the idea that physiologically our body wants to be set up for optimal performance. And the optim optimal performance is all about survivability. Survivability, not necessarily to uh, long-term survivability, even that's kind of what we're shooting for, but survivability in the short term. And when we talk about survivability in the short term, we are going to be utilizing uh a change in performance that can be in the long-term maladaptive. And so what we're talking about, and we, we look at this idea about homeostasis and the response that we see with stresses, is the idea what's referred to as a positive feedback loop. A positive feedback loop sometimes gets misrepresented as a maladaptive response. That is a response that we get that we don't actually want. And that's not true. What the positive feedback loop is doing is it's it's accentuating, it's causing additional responses at a faster rate than what should be occurring in an attempt to get rid of the stress as fast as possible so that we have short-term survivability so that when we actually look at it in the long-term, we can actually survive for multiple days on end. But we're not looking at this response to the stressful event in terms of what's gonna happen two, three, four, five, six days, weeks, months down the line. What we're trying to do is we're trying to make it so that we're able to survive two, three, four, five minutes from now. This is where, uh, at least for my students, they, they like the idea that I present when I, we talk about this. And I usually use the line from the movie uh, Without a Paddle, where the characters are asking why you're taking your shoes off and it's so that they can uh, run faster with the idea that there's a bear there. And the presentation is that, well, you can't outrun the bear. And it's not about outrunning the bear, it's about outrunning the people around you because that's gonna allow me to survive that stressful event. And so when we start looking at this responses that we see to stress, all the responses that we see to stress is that I'm gonna take my shoes off to run faster, not to outrun the bear, but to outrun all the other things that the bear might cause. And so when we start looking at all of the physiological responses, the responses that are going to change our performance, because what is optimal at rest is not optimal under stress. And this idea about not optimal under stress is that if the stress is continuous, we end up having maladaption to our body. The body's going to respond in such a way that it's attempting to constantly and continuously survive the stress. And so when we start looking at, okay, what's the physiological effects of stress? It's the fact that we are in this constant positive feedback loop where I am causing more responses than what are necessary in order to alleviate the stress. But the stress is never being alleviated because we're under constant levels of stress. This goes into a 
physiological principle known as the general adaptive syndrome. GAS is the abbreviation. And what the GAS is indicating is that we have this inability to differentiate within the body where stress is coming from, whether it is psychological cognitive, that is I'm thinking stress, whether it is physiological, that is there is some sort of infection or inflammation taking place that my body has to respond to due to breakdown of tissues or due to uh, infection of cells by a pathogen or whether it's actual physical stress, that is stress that the environment has placed on us that we have to survive. And within this, we have a basically a three-step process within this survivability with, that was summarized in the GAS. The first one is the alarm phase. And what the alarm phase is, the quote unquote fight or flight. That is, I'm gonna do everything in my power either to eliminate the stress immediately or do everything in my power to get away from the stress immediately. This fight or flight is all about a combination of two distinct features within the body. And the two distinct features within the body is linked to our nervous system, and in particular was referred to as the sympathetic nervous system. This is where when we have stresses that are taking place, we're going to have changes within our physiology that's gonna make our physiology act faster. And it's acting faster in an attempt to trigger greater muscle contraction strength, to trigger faster heart rate, to trigger larger breaths, to change blood pressures so that we move blood from areas that we don't need it to areas that we do need it, all in an attempt to either get rid of the stress as fast as possible or get away from the stress as fast as possible. That response is good in a very short term. The problem is, is that if we cannot eliminate stresses, we constantly are stuck in this alarm phase. And when we're stuck in this alarm phase, what ends up happening is we end up having a maladaption taking place. And that maladaption is going to lead to changes in our metabolism. And the changes in metabolism leads to secondary signals being produced, hormonal signals being produced, due to this sense of constant threat, constant danger, constant stress. And so once again, we can't differentiate whether that stress is real, physiological, physical, or imaginary, cognitive. This inability to differentiate between the two means that any type of change in physical environment, any type of change in physiological status, or any cognitive thought process can put me right back into that alarm phase, even if the stress has been eliminated. This is where uh, cognitive issues like PTSD come into play where that PTSD can trigger stressful issues, even though the stress is not actual, real, and present. When that stress stays for long periods of time, we, and we cannot get rid of it immediately, we go from the alarm phase to the resistance phase. And that resistance phase is seen when we start having this change in metabolism. And the principal changes in metabolism that we're gonna see is primarily within our energetic pathways, pathways that we use to get energy in the cells. In particular, we're gonna start seeing swings within our glucose metabolism. It's one of those reasons why everybody is somehow uh, up in arms about glucose spikes and issues with glucose spiking long-term and the onset of uh, type two diabetes and the onset of metabolic issues associated with chronic inflammation, which is the hallmark of aging and stress. And what ends up happening is that when we're in this constant state of alarm and we move from alarm into resistance and we start seeing this change in metabolism, one of the things that starts to pick up are changes in uh, metabolic byproducts, in particular ROSs, reactive oxidative species, and the formation of things like superoxides due to the detoxification of ROSs at the kidney and in the liver, in particular within the liver. Now, we don't want those superoxides to stay in the body. You can think about superoxides kind of like being a, a bottle of hydrogen peroxide in terms of what is there, because basically that's what it is. It's, it's hydrogen peroxides in terms of the superoxide. And what we want to do is we want to get rid of that superoxide. And the liver, in order to get rid of that, it's only going to have one of two ways to get rid of it. It's going to package it up and excrete it in bile to go out through the intestines and be integrated into feces, or it's going to package it up and send it out to the sweat glands and to the oil glands on the skin to get it out through sweat or through oil secretions, or it's gonna package it up and send it to the kidney to get released 
with the rest of the urine. It's that packaging and transportation that takes it into other areas particularly within the skin, in the sebaceous secretions, the oil secretions that are associated with our hair follicles, that leads to bleaching of the hair. It's that bleaching effect of the hair that causes the gray hair. And so why do some people have graying taking place, in particular graying taking place due to stress? It's the fact that we have this change in metabolism and the requirement to remove extra amounts of superoxides due to the need to detoxify the ROSs by the liver or by the kidney, in particular by the liver. And so what ends up happening is that why do we see people in stressful positions of employment graying earlier? It's because of metabolically what's occurring and the accumulation of the superoxides and the need to get rid of the superoxides. Now, if we continue looking at this pathway within the GAS, We've gone from alarm into resistance. If we keep having stresses compound on us, that resistance starts to accumulate. And the body basically says, okay, I've been resisting the stress and resisting the stress and resisting the stress. I keep going to this positive feedback loop and positive feedback loop and positive feedback loop, trying to get rid of the stress as fast as possible. But you are killing me because you keep putting stress on me. I'm done. You can think about this kind of like the, the cartoons words, I'm taking my ball and going home. Or as one of my students will recall when we get to this topic, it's usually, I pull out the Sandlot quote with, you're killing me, Smalls. And it's this compounding effect of stress that's taking place that leads to exhaustion. And it's that exhaustion state where we start having breakdown of the body, which is where we start seeing the wrinkling taking place and the excessive loss of hair and the uh, poor nail growth and the balding effects and the uh, wrinkling and, and, and all of the outward signs that we see associated with the aging effects that can come about due to stress. And so that's what's taking place on a macro scale, on a whole body scale. But that's not the only thing that's taking place and it's why we have to worry about stresses and stresses causing issues, in particular early aging issues as it relates to neuron functions, early aging effects in the cardiovascular system. And that's because this resistance and exhaustion, this constant state of being stuck in that GAS where we're not adapting correctly to the stresses being placed on us because we don't have time to adapt to the stress. And so once again, this goes back into homeostasis. When I have a stress and I have a positive feedback loop in an attempt to get rid of the stress as fast as possible, as the stress begins to drop, as I start to release the stress from the body, I go from having a positive feedback loop, trying to get rid of the stress as fast as possible, to a negative feedback loop, where I'm gonna to try to have the appropriate level of response to maintain homeostasis to allow for optimal performance in the long term. That allows me to have proper adaptations taking place. And so what stress does is it leads to maladaptation, particularly constant stress. And this is why uh, for whatever profession you're, you're doing, if you happen to be students, why you need breaks for people who are working jobs, why you need to take vacation time, why you need to have downtime, why you need to find things that help you relax. What the relaxation does and what doing activities that lead to pleasurable responses do is that it changes the GIS signaling. It takes me out of exhaustion and resistance and allows me to get rid of stresses within an alarm state so that I'm able to quote unquote de-stress. If I'm unable to de-stress, if I'm in constant states of stress, that macro response, that response we see throughout the whole entire body will will filter down into the cells. And this is when we look at responses, we look at responses based on what's referred to as upper regulatory responses. And upper regulatory responses, as we've talked about previously, are basically big macro things, physical activity, nutrition, age, adiposity, how much fat you have, psychological attraction to what you're doing and the likelihood for, of doing it without being coerced into doing it, filter into what's happening systemically throughout the body, which filters into the various cells of the systems based off of hormonal signals, which leads to all of the measurables that we have in terms of physiological responses. And so when we start looking at this, okay, what is taking place as we filter down into the cells, 
as to how stress leads to maladaption. That is improper adaptations taking place that causes stress to compound on stress and why we need to somehow change our approach to dealing with stress, which we'll look at with the revisiting to controlling stress a little bit later on. And so when we start looking at how stress is going to impact the cells, we basically look at it in terms of two distinct avenues of attack. You can put quotes around the attack here. We're going to attack the cell either in terms of its genetic machinery, that is how the DNA is being replicated for more cells to be produced, how DNA is turned into RNA and RNA is being turned into protein so that the cell is able to do what the cell needs to do for survivability. That's one avenue of attack. In this, what stress does is it's going to cause changes in the way in which proteins are being built first. And it does this in an effort at the cell level in order to allow certain cells to survive and other cells to die in a process that we call apoptosis. When stress attacks the cells, when we get this, the stress coming from the entire body down into the cellular uh, parts of the body or the cells that make up the body, when we start changing the way in which proteins are being formed and what's referred to as a folding event. So proteins get formed by, by making chains of amino acids. These amino acids start to interact with each other to fold. That folding makes a functional protein. And what is up happening is based off of changes of enzymatic pathways, changes in metabolic pathways. We change the way in which the proteins are going to be folded, leading to what's referred to as unfolded proteins. The unfolded proteins will change the way in which the cells function. And if this is one of the cells that we want to kind of weed out, it leads to that cell dying. Whereas in other cells, based off of changes of signals within the tissues, we will have refolding taking place that allow for the cells to survive. That's one avenue of the genetic machinery that gets impacted. The other way in which the stress is going to impact the cell in terms of the genetic in terms of the genetic machinery is based off of the replication of DNA necessary to make new cells, what's referred to as mitosis. When we undergo this replication, there's little proteins at the end of each chromosome that are referred to as telomeres. And what's happening is that when we have large amounts of stress and chronic amounts of stress, that is stress that does not diminish, those telomeres get shortened. And what the shortening of the telomeres do is it limits how many times that DNA can get replicated. That inability to replicate by shortening the telomeres leads to a reduction in the total number of times the cell is able to divide, and that leads to cell death. That means that the cell cannot replicate itself in order to replenish the cells that are needed to be replenished within an area. At the same time, there's another thing that comes into play based off of this constant state of stress as relates to the genetic machinery that's opposite to what we just talked about. And that is where we change genetic regulators based off of changes of hormone responses within the cell to the replication of the cell itself. And this is where having constant states of stress, whether it's environmental stress, physiological stress, can lead to metabolic stress. And that metabolic stress can trigger what's referred to as oncogene expression, that is expression of cancers. And that's because what's happening is that instead of regulating whether or not a gene for cell replication gets turned on or turned off, we turn on that gene and that gene leads to irregular replication of cells and that irregular replication of cells leads to the formation of the cancers. And so we have these two avenues of approach that can come into play when we start looking at how stress and the inflammation that comes about from stress leads to changes in the genetic machinery, either triggering abnormal cell growth, the cancer growth, or triggering irregular cell deaths, the apoptosis. If this irregular cell death occurs within distinct cells, like the neurons in the brain, we end up getting neurodegenerative diseases. And so stress can lead to neurodegenerative diseases by changing the way in which proteins get folded or unfolded, leading to some of what we refer to as the plaque formations that are associated with neurodegenerative diseases like dementia, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's disease, just to name a few, all stemming from uncontrollable stress responses taking place within the body that gets weeded down onto the neurons within the brain. But at the same time, we end up having changes within those telomeres that can impact not necessarily the neurons replicating, but 
cells within the nervous system that are responsible for helping maintain the neurons functions, those astrocytes, those glial cells. And so we can have irregular replication taking place within those glial cells that can trigger additional stress onto the neurons leading to additional neurodegeneration. We see very similar impacts taking place within bone tissues, within the cells of the bones, leading to excessive amounts of osteopenia, that is loss of bone tissue itself, that can lead to the diagnosis of clinical osteoporosis. We see that with loss of skeletal muscle in terms of something referred to as sarcopenia, which is the death of skeletal muscle, the loss of skeletal muscle. We see the same type of things taking place within the cardiovascular system in terms of regulation of some of the epithelial cells within the cardiovascular system and its ability to replicate in order to uh, sustain stresses placed on it due to physical and physiological stresses that we encounter. And so that's one side of how the stresses are going to impact the cells. The other side that we're going to look at is what's happening in a little organelle within all of the cells known as the mitochondria. And so what ends up happening is that when we have this excessive amounts of stress on the body, the mitochondria goes into hyperdrive. And that hyperdrive leads to excessive amounts of wear and tear on the mitochondria and the mitochondria's inability to repair itself following that excessive amount of wear and tear. This is coupled with high amounts of inflammation, limiting the amount of new mitochondria coming about. And so what ends up happening is that when we have excessive amounts of stress feeding onto the cells, we get very poor mitochondrial biogenesis, that is the production of new mitochondria, and we limit the ability for the mitochondria to repair itself or build new enzymes necessary to perform the actions that the mitochondria need to perform. This, or these two events within the mitochondria stimulate additional oxidative stress for the body. The additional oxidative stress for the body causes additional inflammation. The additional inflammation triggers more responses within the cells, leading to the issues on the genetic machinery side of it, irregular protein folding, telomere truncation, the shrinking of the telomeres, or additional stress on the mitochondria, causing even more mitochondrial dysregulation, more mitochondrial disruption, and more ROS accumulation. That is what's taking place within stress that causes all of the outward signs of stress that we see. Most of this discussion about stress and how stress triggers into all of those cellular responses comes about through discussion about two key regulatory hormones. The two key regulatory hormones that we typically discuss are cortisol and epinephrine. Those are two of the key stress hormones that we discuss, but it's more than just those two hormones that come into play. We have a whole host of hormones that are going to regulate our metabolic processes, that are going to change how mitochondria are functioning, that are going to change the production of other hormones like growth hormone and thyroid hormone that come from other areas of the body, in particular immune cells, triggering production of stress hormones, particularly the interleukins, in particular interleukin-1, interleukin-2, interleukin-6, interleukin-10, just to name a few of the 30-plus interleukins. It's going to change reactive proteins, and those reactive proteins change signaling on the cells, which change enzyme functions within cells, in particular enzymes were referred to as heat shock proteins. And it's the change in those heat shock proteins that ultimately change the genetic machinery taking place within the cell that lead to the early cell deaths that can take place that triggers the outward sign of stress that we see, such as the early aging. But it's more than just early aging that we look at when we start looking at this idea of stress. While we think about stress as having these long-term impacts on the body in terms of showing aging signs, a lot of the diseases that we discuss as being metabolic diseases are actually diseases due to excessive amounts of stress and chronic levels of stress that trigger all of these responses that we just discussed, but at the same time change metabolic processes that limit the flexibility that we should have in our fuel utilization, that limit the ability for tissue repair and regrowth, that trigger additional stresses and additional stress signaling. One of the things that comes out because we have this additional stress and this additional stress signaling 
are changes in sleep pattern and activation of regions within the limbic system that triggers hyperreflexive behaviors to stresses due to the amygdala becoming hyperactive and the hippocampus becoming underactive. And this is why when we start looking, okay, how can we control stress? One of the things we have to do is we have to start figuring, okay, where is that stress coming from? And so we're going to spend the rest of this discussion here revisiting the ideas and the concepts of how can we control stress that was recorded earlier. So before we get into that discussion, thanks for listening to the new part of this discussion. Please make sure that you have given us that five-star rating. Please make sure you've subscribed to all of the various uh, platforms that publications are coming out on here on the podcast, as well as on the YouTube, on Substack, and in our quick and quick takes on Instagram and on threads. And without further ado, here is the revisit to how we can go about controlling stress so that we can ensure proper metabolic functions, optimal performance, and regulation of our homeostasis. We're going to take a look at and discuss a little bit about the idea of stress and how stress disrupts our homeostasis, but more importantly, how we can go about using our responses to stress and our interpretation of stress to our benefit. We usually think about stress as being a negative, something we want to try to avoid. But the problem is that the way in which our brain is set up is that we can't really differentiate whether or not we have some sort of physical or physiological stress happening, or if it's some sort of cognitive stress that is affecting our ability to uh, perform, our ability to have optimal performance, our ability to have homeostasis. So we're going to take a look at how we can go about responding to various types of stresses and how we can utilize stress to our advantage in what's referred to as arousal. So when we start looking at the idea of stress, what we have to remember is that the interpretation of stress, the ability to figure out whether or not we're under stress or not, is based on how we have this interaction taking place within our brain, in particular within distinct areas of the brain. The most important of these areas is within the region of the brain responsible for our emotional responses and our endocrine responses to stress. And so we have this kind of interplay taking place between our limbic system, in particular the hippocampus and the amygdala bodies, along with some of the other limbical structures, and the hypothalamus pituitary, what's sometimes referred to as the hypophysius, linked into areas of our frontal cortex, our frontal lobe within our brain. And what these areas are doing is that they're trying to interpret signals of stress that we happen to have. And the problem with this interplay is that we can't determine whether or not we're getting stresses from outside the body, whether we're getting stresses from inside the body, or whether we're getting stresses that we're thinking about having. That would be what's sometimes referred to as a cognitive or an imaginary stress. And we can't determine where that stress happens to be starting at. But it doesn't matter in terms of our physiology. What the physiology is going to do is that the physiology is going to look at what do I need to do in order to survive the stress? And this is where we look at what is referred to in physiological responses as an alarm response. The alarm response is the first stage in the neuroendocrine response to stress and to injury and to immune functions, where we go from alarm to resistance to exhaustion. And in that sequence of events, we increase the amount of responsiveness that we have within the body that will eventually lead to some sort of distress or disease setting in. And so when we think about getting like sick or getting uh, ill, sickness and illness, even though we tend to think about it in terms of our being infected, it's not really about being infected. It's about the end result of the neuroendocrine stress responses to our body not being at optimal performance, at homeostasis. That eventually leads to so much tissue breakdown that the body is in a constant state of distress and disrepair and dysfunction, D-Y-S-F-U-N-C-T-I-O-N, that it can't regulate itself regularly. 
And that's where we start having the issues of illness. And it all starts with this alarm response. The alarm response has positives and negatives to it. We want to be able to be alert to any type of things that might be dangerous to us. And that alertness to danger is important for survivability. It's a survival instinct that we're looking at here in terms of this alarm response. And so what ends up happening is is that we have this alarm response. This alarm response is a sense of trigger. And once again, we can't figure out where where that stress is coming from. But what it does is it gears in a positive feedback loop, a positive feedback loop that will constantly be exaggerating more and more and more and more and more response. And it's exaggerating more response. It's causing causing amplification of the responses that we have within the body in an attempt to get rid of the stress. When we have this taking place, what ends up happening is that the hypothalamus, the limbic system, the hippocampus and the amygdala, and the prefrontal cortex are all in constant communication with each other. And what they're doing is that they're setting up a nervous system and an endocrine response to allow us to survive a stressful event. It doesn't care what happens long-term. This is the whole issue with alarm phase causing poor performance if I'm stuck in alarm phase. It doesn't care about long-term ramifications. It doesn't care about what happens to me two hours from now, three hours from now, two days from now, three days from now, three weeks from now. It simply cares about what's happening within that immediate response to feeling stressed. In this, what we'll see is we'll see a spike in our stress hormones, in particular epinephrine, a spike in our excitatory neurotransmitters, in particular norepinephrine, dopamine, and glutamate. And what this does is this causes increased activity within the body. If we think about this, this is sometimes referred to as our fight or flight response. And in this fight or flight response, a couple of things happen within our state of alertness. We become alert to everything. We become alert to everything because everything becomes an additional threat to us. It becomes an additional threat to us to the point that we don't know what the initial threat happened to be anymore. All we know is that there's a threat. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to make sure that any bodily response is geared up in such a way as to alleviate or eliminate the stress. And so what we end up having is that within our cerebral cortex, we end up having an increase of attentiveness, but a decrease in focus. This is where everything becomes shiny objects to us. Something that should not be drawing our attention draws our attention. And we cannot figure out, is it something I should be paying attention to, or is it something that I can tune out? And so we have very high attentiveness, but very poor focus. That high attentiveness and low focus, what that does is that reduces our ability to recall and recollect what we should be doing and what we should know how to do. If this happens to be us taking a test, this is where we get so panicky from the stress of the test that we forget everything we studied. For people who are athletes or people who are doing athletic things, this is where you have the quote-unquote yips come into play, where instead of being able to correctly throw the baseball, the baseball gets thrown 10 feet over the person's head, where instead of being able to swing smoothly and correctly, your swing looks like you're back in t-ball little league for the golfer this is where the golfer has the constant slice or the constant shank or they constantly top it regardless of what they're trying to do it feels like they can't get out of their way in this in this situation and we have this stress and the problem is, is that we can't get rid of that stress until we figure out what is causing the stress response to be initiated and we can't figure that out in the minute. And what ends up happening is that during this time, we are very reactive and excessively reflexive to everything surrounding us. And that's because we have changes in the way in which we activate all the tissues of the body. And that activation of the various tissues of the body is going to cause increases in heart rate, increases in respiration rate, increases in muscle recruitment, but decreases in muscle coordination. And so, like I said, if we're trying to play a sport, this is where we start looking like we're just learning the sport. And in some cases, for professional athletes, we start having tipping taking place, where we 
for someone that is not under excessive amounts of stress, where they're in the correct level of arousal, they'll start noticing that we have some sort of predisposed movement that's going to lead to the movement that we intend to do within our athletic event. So we might hear, like if we're watching uh, a baseball game, or if we happen to be playing a baseball game, we might see or hear about the pitcher tipping the pitch that they're going to throw. And that's because they're reverting back to the behavior that they exhibit while learning the motion because of the level of stress that they have. What they're trying to do is they're trying to compensate for having poor motor coordination by reverting back to behavioral activity that is encompassing of the learning of the behavior as opposed to the execution of the behavior. And what this allows for is it allows for me to be able to do what I need to do under the stressful situation, even though my performance is being impaired. That impairment, we can see if we look at with the student taking the test, where under any other circumstance, if they're out in the hallway of the classroom before the test, or if this is the evening before and they're talking with their parents or their friends or their classmates, and we simply just ask some simple review questions, they know everything. They can answer everything, can talk about everything. But there's something about the testing environment that causes them undue stress. It's an internalized sense of needing to be perfect. And that internalized sense of needing to be perfect raises the level of stress on the body. And it doesn't matter where that stress is coming from, whether it's that internal drive to be perfect or it's the external stress of the environment that I'm finding myself in, such as in the athletic arena, that causes this physiological responses to take place. The physiological responses that are taking place are linked hand-in-hand with a nervous system that is referred to as the autonomic nervous system. The autonomic nervous system is our quote-unquote fight or flight. That fight or flight response is what we see when we see responses to the environment, responses to stress that triggers excessive levels of the stress hormones, epinephrine in particular. When we have these events, when we have the, this excessive level of stress or this interpretation of excessive level of stress, We have to somehow be able to get back to being able to, quote unquote, function in a normal condition or normal situation. And there are various types of techniques that are described that are meant to try to bring back the level of response we have to a given stress so that we're able to perform optimally. And that's the key here. Performance needs to be optimal. And when we're talking about performance being optimal, what we're really talking about is we're talking about physiologically homeostasis. Because when I'm at homeostasis, the body's able to do what I need the body to do in every type of situation and in various types of situations. Which means that if I am pitching in a playoff game, I'm able to throw my fastball or my slider or my curveball in the correct plane so as to induce either a strikeout or a ground out. Or if I'm playing infield, I'm able to correctly position my body in such a way so that I am able to field the ball correctly, turn and throw, and get the person out at whatever bag I'm trying to get the person out at. Or if I am playing soccer, I'm able to uh, correctly execute the penalty kick at the end of the game because that is when the highest amount of stress is typically felt by the individuals. Now, this ability to monitor and maintain stress goes hand in hand with our ability to metabolize correctly. And part of that metabolizing correctly deals with issues surrounding metabolism and fatigue, where If I'm doing things for longer periods of time, I start to develop metabolite signals and metabolites in blood circulation and in interstitial circulation, circulation within the fluids of the body, 
that indicates excessive amounts of metabolism taking place. And whenever I have excessive amounts of metabolism taking place, I usually get a couple of metabolites, one in particular, adenosine, that is a signal for fatigue that kind of disrupts the way in which neurons are supposed to be functioning. And when I get this disruption of the way in which neurons are functioning in a stressful situation, I get even worse coordination of signals coming from the neurons heading out to control my body or within my nervous system controlling other neurons. And when I have fatigue plus stress, I end up having even worse response. And when I have worse response, I end up having poor performance. And when I have poor performance, I will have some sort of issue established. And when we're talking about this issue being established, what we're really talking about is either as a student, poor test performance, or as a performer, poor performance performance. And I know it's a double phrase there. But we're talking about poor, poor, poor performance performance. This could be the uh, actor or actress forgetting their lines or missing their cue. This could be the uh, athlete making an error at a key point in the game, quarterback throwing a, a key interception, running back missing a, a block leading to a sack, all because of the combination of stress plus fatigue. And so what we want to try to do is we want to try to somehow establish a way by which we can control how our body is able to respond to that stress. And this is where we have a kind of duality taking place. And the duality that's taking place in there is that while we have a stress response, this response that causes the positive feedback that leads to amplification of responses in an attempt to get rid of the stress as quickly as possible, we also have a relaxation response. The relaxation response does the exact opposite of the stress response. In the relaxation response, what we're looking at is we're looking at a reversal of the alarm phase, where as we're able to either physically, cognitively, or uh, physiologically remove the stressor, we start blocking the alarm response, the response of increased epinephrine, increased norepinephrine, increase of uh, dopamine, increase of catecholamines, increase of uh, glutamate within the nervous system. All of those changes lead to other changes, particularly changes within the way in which the prefrontal cortex, the limbic system, and, and the hypothalamus are cross-communicating with each other in terms of what type of response should be mounted. When we have this taking place, what ends up happening is that our state of arousal starts to lower. As the state of arousal starts to lower, we start seeing a swing in hippocampus and amygdala activity within the limbic system. And what this does is this changes my focus. The change in focus does not change my attentiveness, which means I'm still able to attend to everything I need to attend to, all the stuff that's in the environment, all the stimulus that's out there. But what it does is it changes how well I am able to focus on what I need to focus on. When I'm able to change my attentiveness and my focus, I'm able to limit the stimulus that I'm paying attention to. If I'm able to limit the stimulus I'm paying attention to, my level of stress continues to drop. Within the brain, we start seeing changes in neurotransmitter activity. We start seeing our inhibitory neurotransmitters start to increase, serotonin, GABA in particular. As serotonin and GABA start to increase, we start seeing lower and lower, lower general activity within the cerebral cortex, which means that we're going to start seeing a reduction in our reactivities, our responsiveness to the stresses, allowing us to become relaxed. Now there's a problem with this. Just like having too much arousal can lead to poor performance, too little arousal can also lead to poor performance. If I become too relaxed, I have too much inhibition taking place within the cerebral cortex. And if I have too much inhibition taking place within the cerebral cortex, I don't get the correct activation pathways occurring. 
And without having the correct activation pathways occurring, I don't have the correct timing necessary in order to perform and execute. The key movements that I need in order to perform correctly, say, athletically, or work at a appropriate pace in order to complete a test assessment in the correct amount of time, or make sure that if I am, say, performing in, in a play or in a movie or in a television show, being on my cue at the correct time and responding to the cued lines at the correct pace and with the correct intensity. Now, for the actor actress, it's okay because typically we have retakes. Shoot two, shoot three, shoot four, shoot five for myself recording this. Take one, take two, take three, take four. Record, cut, delete, re-record, re-cut, re-delete. We have a chance to make up for missing out on those cues because of arousal issues. Whether it's because I have too much inhibition taking place or too too much excitation taking place. And so when we're looking at this idea of stress, what we're really attempting to do in our response to stress, to borrow a quote from Happy Gilmore, is we're trying to find our happy place. We're trying to find the place that allows us to perform but doesn't get us angry, that allows us to perform, allows us to be excited, allows us to activate but not to overactivate. When we have this balance point between alarm response and relaxation response, when we have that balance point, we're able to optimally perform. If I cannot control that, I cannot optimally perform. And that's the key here, cannot optimally perform. Because what we're trying to do is we're trying to make sure that we have optimal performance. It's the optimal performance that's going to dictate whether or not I'm balancing relaxation and arousal correctly. So how can I go about balancing relaxation and alarm? What is going to be the key in that balance point? The key between balancing of alarm and relaxation is about understanding what is stress, what is stressful, and what's the difference between the two. A stress is simply anything that can possibly cause a disruption to homeostasis. Things that are stressful will induce stresses. We're able to control stressfulness by understanding what is and what is not a stress. Part of this is a learned response, which means that the more often I encounter a stressful event, the less likely I am to to indicate within that event one thing or another being a stress. There's an adage that was given to me at one point in time in my academic career that if we want to indicate one thing about how the body functions and what is and how the body is able to maintain homeostasis, it boils down to this. It's what does the hypothalamus sense as being a stress? The more I encounter different types of situations and possible stresses, the less likely I am to appreciate that thing as being a stress because I've encountered it before. I've gone through my alarm response to survive that stress. I've adapted in such a way so that that stress is no longer seen as a stress, which means I now have a new homeostasis for that specific situation. And this is where we have to understand a little about homeostasis. If we go and look at the book definition of homeostasis, it's talking about a stable environment. Usually it discusses a stable internal environment. But that stability is not static, it's dynamic. And every situation that we have encountered is is going to establish a new and different homeostasis for that, spe- for that specific situation. And that's because we're going to adapt based off of a principle known as specific adaptations to impose demands. Sometimes referred to as the said principle. Now, if you talk to my exercise physiology friends and my exercise science friends, they'll talk about said principle as it relates to adaptation in exercise. But that same principle is going to be the same responsiveness that we see within the body 
every stressful event that we see, not just in response to our body adapting to exercise. It's going to be our body's ability to adapt to everything that we encounter. And we'll adapt and change based off of all of the various types of stresses that we've encountered. And so the more often I get exposed to different types of stresses, the less likely I am to see those various types of stresses as being stresses. Even if I get stuck in the same stressful event, I may not see what's in that stressful event as being a stress, which means I'll be able to stay out of full-blown alarm and not need to be in full-blown relaxation in order to be able to optimally perform. And that's the key here. The key here is to be able to balance that alarm and that relaxation in order to optimally perform. And we only learn that through trial and error, our ability to work our way through various stresses and various stressful events and survive the various stressful and stresses within the stressful event. So how can I go about doing that? This is where we have to learn how to internalize the stresses and internalize relaxation mechanisms to reduce our sensing of a stress within a stressful event. This can be simple breathing techniques, such as taking deep breaths and counting backwards from 10 to 0 as you're taking deep and relaxing breaths. This could be visualization techniques where you place yourself, cognitively place yourselves into a stressful event and work out how would you go about responding to that stressful event. This could be practice. One of the things that a lot of soldiers do in terms of being able to establish a responsiveness to the stress of war is to practice war. That's part of what the training that is done during basic training is meant to do. That's what the war games that soldiers do before deployment do. It's meant to establish the stressful event of war with all of the stresses within war and allow you to develop the internalized mechanisms, sometimes for just coping mechanisms, to work your way through the stressful event in such a way so as to be aroused but not aroused to the point of having an alarm response. This could be the athlete working in an environment that is excessively stressful while trying to hone specific skills that they seem to lack in during stressful events. Sometimes we may not want to think about it based off of our current cognitive thinking about uh, stress being placed on individuals through verbal assaults, but this could be something where within practice, having teammates and onlookers do some sort of jeering, some sort of heckling of athletes in order to increase the cognitive state or associating some sort of physical or cognitive punishment or reward for making or missing. The problem is, is that even in all of these practice situations, we cannot establish the same governing guidelines that we see in the real situations. But what it does is that it establishes a cognitive set, a set within the brain as to how can I still execute whatever I need to execute, even given the stakes that happen to be there. For the student, this could be doing the quote-unquote practice testing. But practice testing in conditions that are very similar to practice to testing situations that you would see yourselves in. It's not about taking practice tests in, say, your bedroom. But instead, taking practice tests in, say, the library where it is exceedingly quiet where there is no external uh, talking, or if there is external talking, it's very muted, but people are up walking around making environmental noise that's not verbal environmental noise. Because you know that in the test situation, you're going to have people up and about within the classroom. You'll have students who get done before you do. You'll have proctors walking around the room. All of those various types of environmental stimuli that can act as what is sometimes referred to as distractors 
what the distractors really are is nothing more than a stress. It's the it's a stress within the stressful event of taking the test. And what you're trying to do as a student is you're trying to minimize your physiological responses to the various types of stresses that might be experienced within the stressful event. So you're able to maintain the collect the correct level of arousal so that you can recall and recollect correctly. Once again, that's the key. The key here is optimal performance is going to be the balance between alarm response to stress versus full total relaxation. Because what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to balance out the physiological responses that are taking place because everything that's going to take place within this response is going to be based off of my physiological responses to alarm or or to relaxation. I need to balance those two things out. By balancing those two things out, I'm going to be able to optimally perform. And you'll be able to optimally perform predominantly by cognitively establishing my arousal set point. That is, what things am I going to see as being stress and what things am I going to see as not being stress? And this is where we have to remember that we can think ourselves into a stressful event or we can think ourselves out of a stressful event. That's part of that coping mechanisms, the teaching of the relaxations, where if we happen to be at the free throw line trying to make two free throws, going through a rhythmic response once we get the ball, understanding we have only so many seconds to shoot, but still understanding that, okay, I have so many seconds to shoot, deep breath, center myself, control my quote-unquote thinking, and by control by controlling my quote-unquote thinking, I'm able to control that crosstalk between frontal cortex, limbic system, hypothalamus, so that I get the correct muscle coordination necessary to execute and to make the free throw. If I am the pitcher on the mound in baseball, being able to control myself, center myself, understand, okay, I only have 20, maybe 30 seconds from one pitch to the next pitch, at least nowadays with the way in which the rules have been established. Gather myself, the quotes around the gathering. Understand, okay, this is what I'm going to be doing. Control the thinking, get the thinking out. One of the things that we talk about a lot of times within athletics and within responsive, reactive activities is that thinking is the worst thing you can do because if I'm thinking, I'm having various other stresses coming into play in terms of responsiveness. If I'm the pitcher on the mound and I'm having a bad day and it feels like I can't get anybody out, what I have to do is I have to basically take a very brief timeout. I have to recollect my thoughts and get all of those thoughts out. Because if all of those thoughts are there, even if I'm not paying attention to them, it's going to increase the crosstalk between those areas within the brain. That's going to impact how well can I put my arm in the correct arm slot in order to throw the pitch I want to throw, which will either lead to me continuing to have a bad day or worse, me injuring myself and possibly ruining the career that I have established or I'm hoping to establish. For the hitter, this is where you have to kind of take a step back. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of this. There's a lot of that all going on within the environment. And I need to somehow, quote unquote, block it out. The way in which I can block it out is by doing some of that relaxation techniques. But once again, I don't want to be so relaxed that I cannot respond to the pitch. So when we look at this idea of stress response, what we're really talking about is we're talking about how aroused am I going to get to a stimulus? I want to have arousal. Arousal is good because arousal is going to allow me to respond. The response I have to the stimulus is going to be determined by how aroused I am to that stimulus. How much alarm do I have versus how much relaxation do I have? How much fight or flight is taking place within my body at that point in time? The more fight or flight I have at that point in time, the more alarm I have to a stimulus, the poorer my performance will be. The more relaxation I have to a stimulus, the poorer my performance will be. We have to have this balance point between alarm and relaxation. And the only way to establish that balance point between alarm and relaxation is to put ourselves into the situations multiple, 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 multiple times, attempting to have very similar outputs to what is expected of us in all situations and comparing 
What do we do in the stressful environment relative to what was expected us to do in that stressful environment? Going back and looking at how did our performance change? And what can I do in order to make sure that my performance stays where it should be? One of the very easy measurements to determine if my level of arousal is too high is to look at my heart rate because heart rate is going to indicate, generally speaking, my overall level of arousal. Where when I have excessive amounts of alarm because of the impact that epinephrine and norepinephrine have on the function of my heart, I'm going to have an elevated heart rate. And having that elevated heart rate is going to reduce my ability to optimally perform because it's going to change the way in which the muscles will function, because it's going to change the way in which my breathing is going to function. It's going to change the way in which metabolites indicating fatigue will be available. When I have too much stress, when I have too much alarm, I fatigue sooner. Fatigue is a stress and will disrupt optimal performance because it simply becomes another thing we have to take into account when we're attempting to do whatever we need to do. So what is the take-home message here? What do we need to remember as it relates to responding to stress? We can't avoid stress. That is the biggest take-home message. The only way to completely avoid stress is to not get out of bed, to have fluid intravenously administered, to have food pumped into our body, to not have any type of stressful event taking place physiologically, physically, or cognitively. But even then, we still have stress. Because we will constantly have stress, what we have to do is we have to learn behaviors to minimize our cognitive play in that stress response so that we can have the appropriate response to the stress and the stressful event that contains the stresses to be able to maintain homeostasis, to be able to maintain optimal performance. Which goes back to using that quote from the Happy Euler movie. You have to go to your happy place. You have to put yourself in a cognitive state that minimizes some stresses to allow you to focus on the most, the quotes around that, important of the stresses that you have to face at any point in time. If it's with the student or with the athlete, that stress event tends to be a combination of internalized and externalized expectations. And that internalized and externalized expectations leads to the response surrounding success and what we view as being success. And this is where we have to go back and look at what John Wooden placed in terms of his pyramid of success as the definition of success, which I really like which is success is the peace of mind that you come knowing that you did what you could do to the best of your ability. And I'm paraphrasing that. If I understand that I did the best that I could do, then I automatically reduce both the internalized and externalized stress, both the internalized and externalized stress that is there relating to my performance. If I cannot get rid of the stresses, I end up having excessive levels of resistance and excessive levels of exhaustion. And this is where I start to, with too much stress and too much arousal, have a detriment to my health and a detriment to my overall optimal level of performance. This is where physiologically I'll start having uh, chronically elevated heart rates, chronically elevated respiration rates. I may start complaining about muscle pain, quick fatigue headaches, migraines. I may have constant or continuous state of kind of feeling sick. All of that is from my my inability to get out of alarm. And so once again, we go back to that take-home message. If I need to function optimally, I have to have the correct state of arousal. And the only way to have the correct state of arousal is to find a balance point between a stress response and a relaxation response, an alarm response and relaxation response. What is going to trigger my fight or flight? What is going to trigger my sense of ease? And the only way to do that 
is to put myself in stressful situations and teach myself how to survive those stressful situations so that I'm able to adapt appropriately so that the stressful situation no longer contains the same stress. And when that stressful situation no longer contains the same stress, I'm able to have optimum performance because I see the stress, but I do not respond to the stress as if it is a stress because I know how to respond. Well, thanks for joining us today. Hopefully you got a little bit out of the discussion here on stress and arousal and stress response. There's a passage in the Substack that was published uh, a little bit earlier than the podcast release here that is worth reading if you haven't already read it. Please make sure that if you're liking what we're putting out there to go ahead and click a like and subscribe if you haven't already done so. Please feel free and we would love if you would go ahead and share what we're putting out with all of your friends and family. 